0: You shouldn't be humiliated by losing you should be humiliated if you don't learn from it the only real sin is to not learn you're not going to be perfect so when that instance comes along where you get kicked in the in the teeth decide
1: to get up welcome to in search of excellence which is about our quest for greatness and our desire to be the very best we can be To learn, educate, and motivate ourselves to live up to our highest potential. It's about planning for excellence and how we achieve excellence through incredibly hard work, dedication, and perseverance. It's about believing in ourselves and the ability to overcome the many obstacles we all face on our way there. Achieving excellence is our goal, and it's never easy to do. We all have different backgrounds, personalities, and surroundings, and we all have different routes on how we hope and want to get there. Today, my guest is the incredible Chris Voss. Chris spent 24 years working for the FBI in their crisis negotiation unit. From 2003 through 2007, Chris was the FBI's chief international hostage and kidnapping negotiator, where he worked on more than 150 hostage cases from around the world. He spent three years investigating the 1993 World Trade Bombing and was the co-case agent for the 1996 TWA Flight 800 explosion, which killed 230 people. He is the recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement, as well as the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. Chris is a regular commentator on CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, and many other networks. He's been featured in Forbes, The New York Times, Time Magazine, and hundreds of other publications. He's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Business and is a lecturer at USC's Marshall School of Business. He's also currently the CEO of the Black Swan Group which provides training, negotiation, and leadership skills for executives. He's also the author of the awesome best-selling book, Behind Me, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris, welcome to In Search of Excellence.
0: Amen. Hey man, I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure.
1: Chris, I always start my podcast with our family because from the moment we're born, our family helps shape our personality, our values, and the preparation for our future. You grew up in an entrepreneurial family in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, a small town of 9,000 people. Can you tell us about your parents and how they influenced you as a young child when you were growing up?
0: Yeah, uh, very blue collar, hardworking. My father had his own business, was a sole proprietor, entrepreneur, fuel oil jobber, which is a wholesaler, guy between the big oil company and the end user, but just a very Midwestern, pitch-in You know, be willing to roll up your sleeves and get dirty and get the job done environment and figure it out, too. You know, I mean, a lot of emphasis on here's a task, figure it out. And that was kind of the environment that I grew up in.
1: What were you like as a kid? Were you popular? Were you a leader? And what did you do for fun?
0: I was eminently average. I was just an average kid. Average athletic ability, average size, average intelligence, Nothing extraordinary about me. Ran around outside. My parents kind of would kick me out of the house and say, Be back at dinner time. And if I wasn't working for my dad, I mean, all of the kids, you know, I got an older sister, two younger. We figured he was paying for our room and board. He'd get a return on his investment by putting us to work. So, average kid, Midwestern US.
1: Was there a point early in your life where you said to yourself, I want to be great, be the best at whatever I do, and be extremely successful when I grow up?
0: I don't know that I ever thought, specifically in those terms, I've always thought about getting better, working hard, figuring stuff out, and kind of the relentless pursuit of incremental improvement, you know, to put it in today's terms. I found myself very driven to get better pretty much when I started college, but maybe even more so after I got out, because my grades were, you know, I'm basically a B student, B-plus in high school, B-minus in college. But in hindsight, if you just try to get better incrementally, you'll be shocked at how much ground you can cover. And I think that was pretty much the way that I lived my life.
1: So many successful people that I know have had many negative experience or one or two as a child, which has a profound influence on them in their lives. I stuttered as a child, I was bullied and made fun of for most of my childhood. Can you tell us about an experience you had when you were nine years old and how it affected you for the rest of your life? Yeah,
0: and that wasn't the only traumatic experience. Some of the reading I'm doing these days includes a book called *Antifragile* by Nassim Nicholas Tyler. who also wrote The Black Swan, which inspired the name of my company. But he talks about post-traumatic stress growth, not post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic stress growth. And this is not a learning methodology that you can employ. I mean, you can't intentionally kick people in the face or punch them in the gut to make them better. But life is going to do that to you. And the more you work on thriving after that, the better your life is going to be. So when I was about nine years old, this bully cornered me and terrified me. I mean, just horrified me. And it was the most afraid I was in my life the first time. And then he cornered me again sometime later. I remember that being the most afraid I was my entire life. And I have sort of, especially in law enforcement, as an FBI agent, kidnapping negotiator as a way of being. I got to admit, I kind of, I target bullies. I go after bullies. As a kidnapping negotiator, it it was a way, not just to free the hostage, but to get at the bad guys and defend people from someone who was predatory when they had no other defense. And I think that's sort of been very much undercurrent, a theme to my entire life.
1: This kid, he's nine years old and he made up a story that you broke the law and you'd go to jail and would be executed and yeah. killed. I mean, who, yeah. who does that? Yeah, a
0: coward does that, uh, which is ultimately what a bully is. He was much bigger than me. We were playing on a parking lot, not a block away from my home. For whatever reason, I think he just decided that he was going to horrify me and terrify me and so then not only did he did he outline all this this horrible thing, at the time, the way my mother let us know that it was time to come home for dinner, you know, she blew a whistle. We were in the neighborhood. She, we could hear the whistle. And if the whistle blew, you know, it was time to get home. And I can remember my mom uh, blowing a whistle to go home and a guy wouldn't let me go. And he just ignored it. And at the feeling that I couldn't escape at that time was, uh, was horrifying. I didn't think I was going to get away. So. Yeah, I look back at my life and what was what triggered me. I mean, I hate bullies. And so defending people from bullies has really been, as I said, uh, you know, kind of a theme.
1: When I'd come home crying, my mom would say, Bullies at the end, people who made fun of you when they grow up, the most popular kids, if they're even popular. I mean, today it's not cool to be a bully. You could get in trouble for it. Back then, no one got in trouble for it. No one complained about it really either. So it was a different time. But my mom said, wait till you get older and let's see where the bullies are at that point in time. Do you have any idea what happened to the bully?
0: I think I saw him again a few years later. I'm sure that he lived an anonymous, useless life. There's a couple of things that's a guarantee that you will be mediocre or complete failure. To be a bully, I mean, you will ultimately be mediocre. You know, the flip side of it is, to never pick yourself up to live as a victim, and there's a lot in today's society where it's a contest to see who can be the biggest victim. Like, yeah, you've been hurt, but you don't improve your life by wallowing in being a victim. You improve your life by saying, "Yeah, I get kicked in the, I get kicked in the face, and it was brutal, and it was unfair, and it was wrong, and I got to pick me up." So, neither formula is a formula for success as a human being either being a bully or being a victim.
1: Let's talk about the value of education. You touched upon it briefly about what kind of student you were and what kind of grades. You graduated from Ohio State University with a degree. Iowa in State. Iowa, Iowa sorry.
0: State. Sorry. Iowa State. Yeah, come on. You offended both the right. people in Ohio <laughs> and <laughs> Iowa with that word. <laughs> Sorry,
1: sorry. Yeah, Ohio State. Oh, my God, shoot me because I went to Michigan. And then you earned a Master's of Public Administration from the John F. Kennedy School of Government. When you graduated college, much later, much much later, later, when you graduated college, did you know what you wanted to do, and why did you end up getting a master's degree years later?
0: Yeah, I wanted to be a cop. From about age sixteen on, I saw a movie when I was sixteen called "Super Cops," about true story of two cops in New York City, and they were wildly innovative, and they did a lot of good. and They they were working in a really tough part of town, Bed Back when Bed was dangerous and they were white cops in a black neighborhood and it didn't matter because they were about doing the right things. So the community loved them. Community didn't care what color they were, as long as they were about doing the right thing. And color falls away really fast when core values line up, uh particularly around doing the right thing. So I was inspired by these guys. The other thing I didn't realize was uh they were mavericks. They didn't do what they were told. <laughs> so that's kind of been my formula for my life too. But yeah, then I went to college, you know, kind of a deal with my father. He told his kids, I'll pay for four years of college, period. You can graduate or not in those four years, but the money runs out after four years, and then you're on your own. And so then I went to school, planning on being a cop, studied business as a backup, and then went down and joined the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department uh, pretty much as soon as I got out of, out of college.
1: You were a street cop there, walking the beat. Can you tell us about that? And can you tell us about the most interesting experience you had on the beat, either a crazy Arrest or a time where you felt like you were in a lot of danger or something else you were doing?
0: Yeah, you know, all right. So and we you know, we didn't have foot patrol. We drove in one man cars, one man car patrol. Occasionally we'd have two people in a car, but mostly it was by car. I started out in a commercial area, which is a lot of activity on the street. And then there was a section of Kansas City called the West Bottoms, which was all warehouses. And that was in the first district that I had that I owned that was given to me. And I do remember that most of Kansas City is really well laid out. KCMO, nice grid system, very well organized. But the West Bottoms was a maze. And cops go down there and get lost all the time. And I, you know, my sergeant said, Look, man, you're gonna it's easy to get lost down there. So I made it a point to get go down there and find my way around. I learned that maze. I loved it. And then there was a, there was a bar that was right on the state line, state line road, which was a literal street that separated Kansas from Missouri and it was a bar down there called Tony's corner. And if you were wanted in either state, that's where you went to drink because all you had to do was cross the street to get away from the police, you know, being in another state. And I loved working down there. I loved the challenge down there. And it was a little bit of shooting fish in a barrel. Chances are if if bad guys were down there, they either wanted or thought they were. So it was a high percentage shot to go down and patrol And then I love the fact that I was one of the few cops that really knew his way around the area.
1: Did you ever have any life or death situations when you were in that job?
0: Yeah, you got to see trouble coming. Life or death. If you thought you were going to die, you put on a sissy officer, which is where I need help now. I don't ever remember asking for an assistive officer. I'd like to see things coming. Now, as a uniformed police officer, you're going to stick your neck out a little bit. But whether or not it gets bad really depends upon a lot more on your ability to interact with the community. Are they going to gang up on you because you're a jerk? Or are they going to be supportive of you because you're trying to do the right thing? So I had my gun on a couple of times, never fired it, never got fired at. I always like seeing things come.
1: Then you're going to switch from being a street comp to being on the Kansas City SWAT team. And then the FBI... Hired you for their SWAT team in their Pittsburgh right. office where you worked right. for two years. You had some local training, then you went to Quantico and then you transferred to New York. Can you, it's not an easy transition or it doesn't seem like one. Can you tell us about that? And did you ultimately, as a kid, did you want to work for the FBI?
0: Yeah, the FBI came up just sort of out of the blue. My father started to encourage me to go federal law enforcement because he wanted me to excel. And he saw federal as being a step up from local, which is not necessarily the case, but that's how a lot of people saw it. He introduced me to Secret Service agent. And at the time, I had no idea what the difference was between ATF, FBI, CIA, Secret Service. I I had no idea. I'm talking to the Secret Service guy. And he said, you know, I travel all over the world with the service. And I thought, now that sounds interesting. Somebody else is going to pay for you to go around the world. I want to find out some more. Secret Service wasn't hiring but the FBI was and it was a big hiring push with a relatively mediocre resume at that point in time but I scored very high on their tests I got into Quantico and then the academy training at Quantico was phenomenal I mean I was really impressed with the training which was both law enforcement smarts book training classroom training physical fitness firearms and defensive tactics 16 weeks of awesomeness if you want to work hard and then they transferred me to pittsburgh got on the swat team there that was an amazing experience and then i get transferred to new york and became part of the terrorist task force and life changed again it was great
1: i spent my junior summer before my senior year i went to michigan and i did an internship at the national crime prevention council we went to the fbi one day for the tour and i said i want to work for the fbi but I'm an entrepreneur by gene. I just have the bug. So for years, as I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I went to law school. I thought about the FBI, which seemed really cool. I would have loved that, but I also thought I wanted to make a little more money than the FBI agents make, and, but I still have this somewhat fascination with one day going back to law enforcement. The other thing is I wrote a fiction book years ago And the FBI was a big part of it. I was on a nonprofit board with Ali Mayorkas. This was after 9-11, three months later. And he set up a tour with me with the SAC in the Chicago office, Jim DeSarno, who gave me full access. I mean, he put a couple of people in charge. They walked me through the whole thing. And I just think it was incredibly fascinating. I mean, it it said to me again, one day, I don't know if I ever retire and and I probably (laughs) would be too old. To work there, but I've I've always been fascinated with the FBI.
0: You no, know, if I could add in the cool thing yeah. about the Bureau was which was different than any other federal law enforcement agency, because if you're Secret Service, you're doing counterfeiting and protection, that's it. DEA you work in drugs, ATF, guns, bombs, moonshiners. The FBI does everything. So like whatever you're into, like if if you're enthusiastic about art history, the FBI works art fraud. So like whatever you're into, the Bureau's got a spot for you, which was a cool thing about being there.
1: It's very hard to get a job there today. I don't
0: know. They hire me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It was easier before, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I hear from some of my mentees in college who want to go into law enforcement, secret service, incredibly tough. The FBI, very, very tough. On our path to excellence, we have a number of setbacks and challenges that we need to yeah overcome. We we don't give up. We don't quit. You get transferred to the FBI's New York office, and then you go into the office of the head of the negotiations team, and she summarily rejects you. At some point, yeah. when we're working our way up, you have a boss or a mentor who gives you incredible advice. Can you tell us what she told you?
0: Yeah. And let me put two caveats on whether or not you should listen to somebody's advice. And they're real close, but there's subtleties to both. Never take advice from somebody you wouldn't trade places with. Don't take direction from somebody who hasn't been where you're going. So she summarily rejected me. I was eminently unqualified. (laughs) But the real qualification is really persistence and can you take direction? So I said, look, there's got to be something I could do. I I, I don't believe in passively accepting things. I've always believed that there's some action that can be taken. I'm not good at inaction, unless it's dynamic inaction. (laughs) But that's almost another topic. But so I said, look, there's got to be something I could do. And she said, there is. Volunteer on a suicide hotline. So I did. I mean, to me at the time, that just seemed like blatantly obvious. She was in charge. She was somebody in hindsight that I'd trade places with, running the team. She must know what she's talking about. Also, are they going to be accountable for your success or failure? Is this subtle nuance? If somebody's giving you advice and if you fail, it's no skin off them. You might want to think about whether or not you need to take that advice, because they're not gonna care if you fake. How and if you succeed, are they gonna look out for you? It's how to recruit a mentor unofficially. So it just seemed obvious to me. So I went, I volunteered. And I and I came back to her five months later and I said, Look, I want you to know I've been volunteering on the suicide Hotline for several months now. And she was shocked. Now, I was shocked that she was shocked. She said, you know, I tell everybody to do this. Nobody does it. Because of that, it moved me instantly up the rankings of who's going to take the next position. Because I listened and I acted on the advice. And it just seemed so obvious. And so few people do it. And Maybe it's because people get advice all the time from people who have no business giving them advice. There's no reason to think they know what they're talking about. And because they like you is not a reason. Like a lot of friends and family will give you utterly useless advice, very well-intentioned. They like you, they love you, they're supportive of you, but they don't know what you're ta- they're talking about. You got to have reason to believe that a person knows what they're talking about.
1: So that's your first experience where you're talking to people. What you're saying in real time can make the difference between life and death.
0: Yeah, so and that was really what I learned on Suicide Hotline. Not only did I learn that on a hotline, but I learned that empathy is an accelerator. Like I, you know, you have all these uh, visions of what being on a suicide hotline is. And by the way, it's just a masterclass in emotional intelligence is all it is. Now, I didn't know that at the time. Nobody knew that. I thought it was confined to that environment. It's not. It's everything. So you get there for the training and you envision that you might be on the phone for hours talking to somebody off a ledge. And right off the bat, they say, look, every call is limited to 20 minutes. You got a 20-minute time limit. And if you apply the skills properly, it's not going to take 20 minutes anyway. And I remember being shocked, thinking like, no, wait a minute. What about all the movies and TV? You're telling me movies and TV are wrong? And lo and behold, you get on and you apply empathy, applied empathy, tactical empathy, what we refer to now. And it accelerates the interaction in ways that will astound you. And I learned that way back when on the suicide
1: hotline. You moved to a new location for work. And before we talk about how you became a hostage negotiator, I want to talk about planning for our future and doing whatever it takes to advance our careers. FBI has 56 field offices around the country, many of which are in major cities where there's a lot to do when you're not working. You moved to New York, which is exciting to a lot of people. What if the FBI wanted you to move to Anchorage, Alaska, which is a great place to live for many, but maybe the last place that someone would want to live, would you have gone there? And what's your advice to people on this front? When your employer asks you to move to a new location that isn't where you want to live or worse, seems terrible to you, do you go?
0: Yeah, well, what's your agreement up front? Like, first of all, Anchorage in the FBI is a tough get. I mean, a lot of people anchor it there and a lot of openings there and the people that want to be there, there's a line to get into Anchorage. But basically, I didn't want to go to New York. I mean, I was not interested for a variety of reasons. Principle one being cost of living. At the time, there was no cost of living increase to go to New York, and it was taking a step, a significant step back financially. Pittsburgh to New York, housing prices were triple what they were in Pittsburgh. But what was my understanding going in? Fortunately, you know, I had honest and candid people, and my integrity is important to me. What does that mean? The recruiter said, don't take this job if you can't go to New York. Just don't do it. And I remember thinking like, all right, cool. I'll accept that. Now I'm in Pittsburgh and it looks like it's lining up for me to go to New York. And I did everything I could within the rules to steer my career in another direction. Who could I legitimately influence within the rules? You know, What cards do I have to play here? And tried to play them. Wrote a memo. I pre had family in Chicago. I mean, like if you got to send me to a big city, send me to Chicago. I ended up in New York. Did not want to be in New York, but first of all, my understanding was it was a possibility, and I had agreed to accept that. And secondly, it was fascinating. If you're being sent someplace you don't want to go, will it advance your career? Was that part of the agreement to begin with? Have you been double-crossed in any way by being sent there? But did you already tacitly agree, and now you change your mind? Well, if you already agreed, you got a problem. And in most cases, if you agreed to something, stick it out for a year, See what happens. Like, I was not interested in being in New York, and I loved it. Not only did it, was it so great for me, I stayed almost triple the amount of time I needed to be there. I could have been out of New York in six years. I stayed for 14 because I had such a great time working with high-quality people in a challenging environment. I was so happy in my time in New York. It's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me.
1: You mentioned the hotline, great experience there, but you were originally on the SWAT team. So sometimes we need to be flexible in terms of we think our career is going this way, and our career is then going that way. You were into martial arts at some point in your life. So can you tell us about how you became a hostage negotiator and how, how it ultimately happened?
0: And it's, it ain't a straight line. A lot of the net steps forward come from a lateral move, or I've heard people in companies talk about, they didn't just take a lateral move, it was a lateral and a step back to get to someplace even higher. So I was on a SWAT team in Pittsburgh, went out on a few operations, SWAT trained, and then got sent to New York and didn't, wasn't on the SWAT team in New York, but thought about trying for, out for the Bureau's hostage rescue team, which was the next level up. Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs, the HRT, and plenty of former SEALs on that team, and re-injured my knee, and then had it rebuilt again, and then thought, all right, so I want to stay in crisis response. What else is here other than being on the SWAT team, because eventually my knee is going to break and not get fixed again. And we had negotiators, and I thought, it like so many things that look easy, it's because the people that make it look easy have worked really hard at it, and are still working really hard at it. But that's why I switched over to negotiations. And then when I got into it, for me, for the way I'm wired, it was far more satisfying than SWAT ever was. So it was a circuitous route, which were, was filled with setbacks. I use the analogy sometimes, it's not a U-turn, it's an S-curve. However you need to look at it, very rarely are what's perceived as setbacks anything but a, a path to something better.
1: Let's talk about bank robberies for a few minutes, and I want to start with a few stats on this. In 2019, there were 2,060 bank robberies. Banks lost $400 million as a result of them. It's a lot of money, but the the, the crazy thing is the average robbery is only $4,000. The penalty for bank robberies is 10 to 25 years in prison, which basically means if you rob a bank, you're going to serve 10 years in prison for what amounts to $400 a year. I don't get it. But kind of crazy math. And then it's also crazy. Only 60% of bank robbery cases are, are solved. Let's talk about bank robberies with hostages. They're extremely rare, one in 20 years. But the one in 20 was your, your first case. It's 1993, and there's a robbery at the Chase Manhattan branch. It's 7th and Carroll in Brooklyn. Can you walk us through that and, and what happened?
0: Yeah. And the whole reason why you rob banks is a whole different thing. And I love that you brought that up. I'll bring it up real quickly because I always wondered that myself. Like, robbing a bank is a stupid idea. You don't get that much money, and you're going to get your picture taken. I mean, you're going to walk into an environment where they got cameras everywhere. Why do that? I was at uh, a landmark training a couple of years ago in in L.A. You know, I'm always looking for ways to get better. And there's this kid talking there. You know, kid is in his mid-30s. He went down for bank robbery three times. Like, it took him three times to figure out this was a bad idea. but he had it in his head that it was thrilling. So it wasn't for the money, it was for the thrill. And what people see in their head, vision drives decision. That's how people do dumb stuff. Human beings on a regular basis do dumb stuff on a regular because of what they see in their head. So, not this bank robbery you asked me about in Brooklyn. Yeah, the guy saw in his head that he was going to get in and get out before the police showed up. And he saw in his head how they were going to get in, they were going to threaten their way into the vault, they're going to get past the tellers by forcing the tellers to let them come in. And the way he did it, when he came in the bank, he had a gun that looked like a 357, And he put it in one of the female tellers' mouth before the bank was open. He knew the exact timing. Put the barrel in her mouth and pulled the trigger on an empty chamber, which, as expected, would horrify. And you would open a vault if you could. So he's got this all mapped out on his head. Problem is, somebody sees him on the inside. Bank alarm goes out. I'm in a New York office, the FBI, it's 8.30 in the morning. My buddy Charlie walks up, says a bank robbery in Brooklyn with hostages, let's go. Yeah, the vast majority of bank robbers get out, and it's rare that they get caught inside. So we roll out. It takes us an hour to get there, and it takes us, the whole negotiation team, another hour to get set up. So two hours after the bank alarm has gone out, we're ringing into the bank, trying to offer them. We're cold calling salesmen who are selling jail time. That's what a a hostage negotiator does. He sells jail time.
1: Let's talk about mirroring, laboring, and mastering delivery. Those are three techniques you use to come to a safe resolution there, which you use in every other negotiation, whether it's a criminal case or in business. The first technique is mirroring. The second is labeling. And the third is delivering the right voice and the tone of your voice. And my favorite here is the late night DJ voice. There you go. I've been practicing that in in advance of the podcast. So let's start with mirroring first. What is it?
0: Well, mirroring is just repeating the last three words of what somebody's just said. Now, our bank robber at the Chase Bank, I didn't know it at the time. I learned it later. He exhibited all the attributes of a great CEO negotiator. So what is that? A great executive, a great business negotiator has a massive amount of power and influence. Is going to appear powerless at the table. I learned this much later when I was at Harvard. One of the guys says, "Yeah, it's blaming it the people that aren't in the room." Like if you're a CEO, you got to say, "Like ah, I got a board. My board is crazy. I don't know what they're going to do. I can't agree to this. You know, my board's going to fire me." What does bank robber do? He said, "I got to tell you, these other guys that went, they're more dangerous than I am. I'm scared of them. Like I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I'm talking to you. Well, oh, here comes one now. Let me hang up the phone." He was blaming people that weren't there. And he was completely in charge. He was totally in control, which is he envisioned outsmarting us. Even I was the second hostage negotiator. The first guy on a phone, he literally said to that negotiator, I'm the calmest one here. And he was. So they put me on a phone a couple hours into this after five hours of stalemate. And I'm going to confront them, but gently. There's nothing wrong with confrontation. It's how you do it. You script it in advance. You use the late night FM DJ voice. You know, not the accusatory voice where your voice says, you know, you're wrong, you're bad, you're, you're evil, you're a jerk. You know, your inner voice is going to betray your outer voice. So have a soothing voice, put you in a position to tell people the truth. And the truth was at this point in time was we were, Sure, that we had his car and we voice ID'd him. He was concealing from us what his real name was because he figured he would get away and giving us his real name would be a stupid idea, you know, giving up that closely held piece of information. So I confront him over the van, which catches him off guard. I'm doing it with a late night FM DJ voice and he starts babbling about how many vans he had. And I'm, he says, we don't we have more than one van. That didn't make sense to me. So I mirrored. So you got more than one van? Because yeah, well, when the police showed up, you chase my driver away. Now I got no idea what this dude is talking about. None. Which is a great thing about mirror as a skill, just repeating the last couple of words that somebody just said. It takes no real brain power, which is why it's a great skill when you're really caught off guard. And it gets the other people, the other person to say stuff they probably shouldn't say. So I said, we we chased your driver away? He says, yeah. And when he saw the police, he cut and run. Now, he just gave up his getaway driver with that statement that we had no clue about. None. He threw this guy under the bus while working really hard to avoid saying anything to compromise this position. And the next thing he knows, he's babbling, telling stuff that he should not tell us, which is a great skill about a mirror repeating the last three words, not the body language mirror, the tone of voice mirror, you know, all that's nonsense. The hostage negotiators mirror is just repeating the last couple of words. And the other side, it's shocking how it keeps them talking. And that's exactly what happened in this case.
1: So let's talk about the second technique. What is labeling? And can you talk about the neuroscience here?
0: Yeah. Labeling is just, it's meant to be self-defining. Label the affect or the dynamic, not the words, but the affect or the dynamic that you hear. You sound angry, you sound upset, you sound frustrated, and just it's a verbal observation and verbalizing your observation of the tone or dynamic, how you perceive them to feel, especially if it's negative and especially if it's against you. Now, the neuroscience is labeling negatives is the most effective way to get rid of them, not denying them. If you sense that the other side is frustrated with you, your gut's going to say, I don't want you to be frustrated. Eh, wrong. Wrong way to do it. You need to say, you sound like you're frustrated. That two millimeter shift is the most effective way to dissipate the negative. Diffuse it. defuse it or diffuse it, depending upon which version of that word you want to use. Nothing more effective than simply calling out the elephant in the room, calling out the negative dynamic in the room. Especially if it's pointed at you. Not the stuff you have pointed at them, the stuff that's pointed at you. It's shocking. Again, I, I get maybe I like the word. It accelerates your progress instead of delaying. And the only way you come to learn it is to try it. It's magic. It's
1: really, really effective. So we've talked about mirroring and labeling. Let's talk about the delivery now. The right voice, the tone of your voice, and the three options here.
0: Well, the delivery is principally, hostage negotiators' delivery, 90% of the time is a downward inflecting, something we call a late-night FM DJ. Now, your voice doesn't have to be low or a deep voice to downward inflect. We get a lot of questions from women frequently. I don't sound like Morgan Freeman. How do I How do I do a late-night FM DJ voice? You can do it. You tuck your chin when you talk that automatically helps you downward inflect. It's a physical amplifier of trying to get the late night FM DJ voice. Sandy Hine, who teaches our women's only stuff, women's power hour, she teaches our negotiation nine, but she also does stuff especially for women in, in our programs. The Black Swan group, blackswanltd.com. But, and if you're a woman, Sandy really understands the nuances to help women get better. And she's one who pointed the chin tucked down out to me because I'd always done it. She said, for women, what do you do? And she's tuck your chin, go downward inflect. Now that calms the other person down and makes you look and feel to the other side is more self-assured. The great news anchors have mastered it because they need you to believe in them. So the downward inflection is really great at, telegraphing, promoting, displaying confidence without being arrogant. People have faith in you and calm down at the same time. Kind of a double benefit of using
1: When we think about our future, we're in the workforce or in our personal lives. There are times where we all experience extreme pressure. You're a new employee. You spent three weeks preparing a presentation. Senior executives are there you've never met before. You know, it's going to make a big influence in your career at that company. You may kill it. You may bomb it. Or you're an ER doctor and someone comes in with a gunshot wound, a heart attack, COVID, something else. You may be the best ER doctor in the planet, but you know a fair number of your patients are going to die. Let's talk about the extreme pressure of being a hostage negotiator, which is different than being a doctor because these life-threatening situations are much less frequent. Even though you don't experience them on a daily basis, what you do in the next minute or a few hours can determine if whether people live or die. You have a lot of experience, you're armed with all these techniques, but is your heart pounding inside your chest when someone's life is on the line and a bad guy has a gun pointed at someone's head or has explosives and is threatening to detonate a bomb?
0: Well, it is if you haven't prepared. You don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. A suicide hotline time was great preparation. And then I understood preparation and the process. And then you lean into the process and also... Realize two things. There's never a guarantee of success. With the best process, it's the best chance of success. Like some stuff is just never gonna work out. So when you realize you've got the best chance of success, then you're beginning to have faith in a process and you relieve the pressure of having to be perfect because nothing is perfect. And the other thing when you got a good process is. The straw that broke the camel's back never broke the camel's back by itself. There's never any one mistake that causes a catastrophe. It's an accumulation of straws. It's an accumulation of mistakes, which means when you've worked on a good process, you also have the latitude to make an occasional mistake because your process is stuck. So I had come to learn that By the time I got ready to get on the phone at Chase, I'd been working the process. I had my preparation. I knew that the late night FM DJ voice, which I'd practiced in small stakes interactions, was probably going to carry the day. And it was going to give me all the latitude I needed to make mistakes. Because when I was on the phone with the bank robber, they did surrender to me personally. He agreed to meet me outside the bank. I can remember one point in time he got mad at me. He was like, hey, look, don't try and school me. And I got latitude. This guy can get mad at me. That was a straw. But my accumulation of straws at that point in time wasn't an issue. So I didn't get rattled by making a single mistake. And throughout the duration of that, the negotiator that followed me on on the phone, Dominic Messino. Dominic was a star. The bank robber almost went ballistic on him several hours later into the siege because they were trying to put a mic in a bank. And I tried to saw through the wall and uh, the position, the spot that they picked on the wall to cut through was right next to where this guy was standing. And he starts screaming at Dominic over the phone. And that's probably multiple strokes. but Dominic was a calm guy and he didn't get rattled. And he knew that as long as he, as long as he didn't get rattled situation, probably wasn't going to get out of control. So, as a hostage negotiator, what you really learn is you got latitude if you got a good process, and there's no guarantee of success.
1: Let's talk about success rate. In baseball, you bat 300, you're in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, in the FBI, in a hostage negotiation, if you're batting 300, you're you're not doing very well, <laughs> and you're probably right. three and done at that point. No one bats 1,000, like you said, but what is the success rate? And have you had people die on your watch? And, and let's yeah. also transition into the Gerald Carroll case. And can you tell us about that case?
0: Yeah, well, success rate's about 93%, which means 7% of the time it's going to go bad. And whether it's domestic or whether international kidnapping, it was my gut instinct that any hostage negotiator, once they were kidnappings, they were climbing north of double digits. Something was getting ready to go bad. I mean, just just the nature of things. And then my real test was, if you hit the iceberg, if you were the Titanic and the whole thing sunk, how'd you bounce back? And I look for the negotiators that bounce back after somebody getting killed. And I would specifically recruit them and tell them that I was recruiting them because they were in a siege where somebody died and they didn't quit. They hung in there instead of giving up. Those were the people that I was after. So, yeah, it is going to go bad. And and I had uh, the first time that somebody ever got killed on a case that I had my hands in directly was a Burnham Sabaro case in the Philippines. My second time through the Philippines, I, it's I talk about in the book, never split the difference. And when that train wreck was finally over and two out of three of the Americans were dead, we reviewed everything we did and we decided that we did everything we could. And I'm like, all right, so then that means we have to learn the quote the great Irish philosopher Colin McGregor, right? I win or I learn. And so yeah, you shouldn't be humiliated by losing. You should be humiliated if you don't learn from it. The only real sin is to not learn. But I said we gotta learn. We gotta we gotta get better. And if we did everything we know how to do, that means that we don't know enough and we got to go outside. That's when I went to Harvard, Started to collaborate with them. But you know you win or you learn. And you're not gonna be perfect. So when that instance comes along where you get kicked in the right in the in the teeth you could curl up and die or you could curl up but then decide to get up and the people that decide to get up are the people that i like to be around
1: so the jill carroll case comes around you have al-qaeda three people standing over her with looks like ak-47s one behind her you get called and what happens in that case
0: Well, we read that as a high threat. The visual data that we got back looked like they were orchestrating an execution, which was their history up to that point in time. And so what do we do? We tell the truth. They tried to pretend like they were negotiating, and we called them out globally. Two things. It didn't look like a good faith negotiation. They want to convince the world they negotiated, which then was further justification for killing a hostage because we didn't negotiate good faith. And we said, you you guys aren't negotiating. Not only that, the thing I think that really got them was we called them out for breaking their own rules. And the rules that they broke when they displayed her was they displayed her with her hair uncovered. Now, they had complete control of how she was depicted in that video. So they chose not to cover her hair, which means they chose to be disrespectful to a woman. And that's exactly what we pointed out. Not accusatory way, but officially and unofficially and through a lot of third-party intermediaries, we said, you guys disrespected her. You allowed her, you caused her to be videotaped and displayed to the world with her hair uncovered. So, and then it was dead silence from the other side. We didn't call them out on our rules. We called them out on their rules. You know, I got a uh, colleague of mine used to like to say, I can live by your rules, kid, you. So we call them out on their rules. Dead silence from the other side, trying to decide what to do. We put her father in the media, carefully orchestrated statements. Next time they put her on video, there are no executioners standing around her. She's in there by herself and her hair is covered. You know, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is give the other side the illusion of control. We told them they were in control. Because they were, they screwed it up. And ultimately, one of the very few kidnappings that I, no ransom, to my knowledge, was paid or even implied. About 88 days after they snatched her off the street, she suddenly appeared back on the street in pretty much the same location she was kidnapped from.
1: Amazing story. Let's talk about the value of saying no. This one, counterintuitive to most people. Last week, I had lunch with one of my best friends. He's the founder of $2 billion companies. He runs a very successful venture capital firm. He's one of the nicest guys that you'll meet in your life. So we're sitting there at lunch, talking about how hard we work, including very late nights after we have dinner with our families and put our kids to bed. He shows me his calendar that day. There's 10 back-to-back Zoom meetings. There's five in the morning and five in the afternoon. The only break is our lunch. And I show him my calendar. He says, does yours look like that? And and I only had eight. I, I look like, you know, I'm I'm not quite at 10. We're we're talking because he's such a nice guy, and people always want meetings for him. These aren't random people, by the way. These are people or referrals from friends or business people. And he says to me, "I have to start saying no to people. I don't want to piss anybody off, but I just can't be doing this anymore." And I'm sitting there and I nod my head and say, "I have the same problem. It's really hard." So here's the question: Do we need to take meetings when somebody says, "Do you have a few minutes to talk?"
0: Never. No. First of all. somebody wants to talk in terms of meetings or they got a proposition, they can probably put it in an email. Like even, even now take a meeting with an agenda, know why you're taking the meeting, know why you're trying to get stuff done. a lot of people say, you know, let's talk. And my response is, what do you want to talk about? Well, we got an opportunity. I'm like, all right, so lay the opportunity out. Let me get an assessment of whether or not, you know what you're talking about.
1: They don't like it by the way. They don't like it when you send an email like that. I can, can tell you now they think it's insulting.
0: Cool. I got no problem with that. Because uh, we got an <laughs> axis that we work off of now, which is we don't do business with people that are, and this is a Joe Polish Genius Network phrase, half, hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. Because execution is bad. Implementation is bad. Like, this is just going to go down bad. Now, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they're a bad pick for us. So if I ask you to lay your stuff out in an email and you get mad... We're bad fit. I don't need to go any farther. Than this. Now, you might not want to lay it out in an email because you don't have a clear picture of what you're doing, which also means you're we're a bad fit. Or you might just have a great idea and not realize it, but you want me to do all the work, which is why you don't want to put it into an email, which also means we're a bad fit. If you have a game plan, which is more important than an idea, lay the game plan out. And if it looks like something we can execute, then we'll continue. If it doesn't, I could say no right away and you can move on to somebody who's a better fit. So if I want you to lay something out in an email and you don't want to lay it out in an email, you get offended. That ain't my problem. It's your problem. This is a bad fit and we are not into bad fit these days. So if we take a meeting and every now and then I break this rule and I always get punished for it and it ends up being a waste of my time. Everybody's most precious commodity is time. So protect your time and it will accelerate your success.
1: Let's talk about success. That's one of the goals of my podcast, inspire, motivate people on their path to greatness and excellence. What are the three most important ingredients of success on that path to excellence? I think
0: the biggest one is really just just focus on getting a little bit better every day. You'd be surprised at how quickly you get, uh, how far you get quickly by getting a tiny little bit every day. Plus, you know, the other fringe benefit, if you have a day you didn't get better, you don't feel this great sense of loss. Like, oh my God, I'm never going to recover that. Feeling of loss is probably impacts us more than anything else. So focusing on getting just a little bit better each day. Also, uh, success. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. Be a better team player versus a team leader. That's been a real struggle for me because I always led diva, you guys support me. Flipping around, how do you support the other team? How do you start putting the team in front of yourself? That also seems counterintuitive. And again, you'll be surprised at how far you get in six months if you go as a team. You want to go far, go as a team. And then third is probably hear people out. I mean, people are dying to have their say. You'll also accelerate all your relationships and all your outcomes by hearing people out rather than Given direction, which is you want them to listen to you. So, hear people out to really strengthen your relationships, strengthen your team, learn and work better, more cohesively.
1: My motto is anything is possible. I give talks about this at colleges and business schools. And it's one of the goals of this podcast to motivate people to believe in themselves, to achieve um, excellence in their life, in all facets of their life. Tell us about black swans, and let's go back to the 16th century in Australia.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the name of the company, the Black Swan Group, our negotiation approach, the Black Swan method. So Black Swan, again, Talib's book from 2007, The Impact of the Highly improbable, and where did that really come from? In the 16th century Europe, people thought that there were only white swans. There could never be a black swan. And then lo and behold, black swans were discovered in Australia. What are the tiny little things that'll massively change everything? Can you look for them? Should you look for them? You know, that's the whole point. And what do you do? What are the tiny little things that you could do that will massively change the outcome? One of those things is instead of denying negatives, label it. The other side thinks you're being disrespectful. And you want to say, I don't want it to seem like I'm disrespectful tiny little shift that'll make all the difference in the world. I'm sure I seem disrespectful, calling it out versus denying it. That's what really the idea of black swans are. And they're everywhere. There's always little things that don't take a lot of effort to do that will make a massive amount of difference.
1: Before we finish today, I want to play a game that I do in all my podcasts where I ask you a few questions. I start the sentence and you finish it. Ready to play? And what uh, Do I get a prize here? What's the prize? It, so, it sounds like, I should, you know, I should get a prize. Jeez. I'm going to send you a copy of my coffee table beach drone photography book called Bliss, which since it was released on um, Amazon in June, it's been the number one bestseller in four different photography categories. So I'm going to be sending. Congratulations. The- Thank you. I'll be sending you. I would book. dig that. Okay. Yeah. Copy right behind me. I, right there. When yeah, I started. Very my- cool. Thank you. When I started my career, I wish I had known to be just a little nicer. That doesn't mean be more of a
0: pushover, just take a couple of miles an hour off the fastball, just be a little gentler in how you deliver information.
1: That's something I wish I had learned as well. And that's something I've been working on in my career throughout the years. The biggest lesson I've learned in my life is. Yeah, setbacks are
0: setups. I mean, the, the best things that have come to me have come to me through really negative things. So, you know, don't get rattled over a setback. It's it's taking you someplace better.
1: Going forward, my professional goal is?
0: Wow, just to get better. Just to get better, to continue to learn. And then I'll see where that takes me. My biggest personal goal is? Pretty much the same thing. I mean, like I I got some bucket list stuff, that are personal accomplishments that I want to do almost, you know, I'm going to climb Everest. I want to hike the South Pole. I want to swim the English Channel. I mean, why not? And I'm going to try and do it at an advanced age to make it, make it a big deal. Anybody could do that if you're in your 30s. Let's talk about doing it 60 plus.
1: I have a bucket list too. I look at it every year. I've checked a few of them off my list, but I've got, I've got a long way to go. Hopefully I'll stay healthy and I'll be able to do them. My biggest regret is?
0: I don't have a lot of regrets. I have very few, as a matter of fact. And they would be intensely personal in nature, and I'm not going to show them.
1: <laughs> if President Biden were standing in front of me, I would tell him. You're doing a good job. The person in the world that I admire the most is. Wow, there are a lot of people that I admire. Probably Bono from YouTube. Bono's on my top three list of people to meet in the world. Done so much. Love the music. Humanitarian. He's on my top three. The one His question...
0: humanitarian achievements are uh, phenomenal.
1: Incredible. I want to give a huge shout out to my great friend, the incredible Sarah Zapp. Two years ago, you were a guest Sarah. speaker at a lunch at her incredible organization called Beyond Board. His mission is to help women get into public and private company boards. We met there for the first time and she reconnected us for this podcast. So I'm grateful to Sarah. I want to finish, Chris, by thanking you and telling you that you made a huge difference in my life. You made a difference after that talk with Sarah. I went back and I said, I really need to recalibrate some of the things that I think and some of the ways that I do. You've no doubt made a difference in tens of thousands of people's lives. As I mentioned, I've been using your techniques since I I heard you at the lunch and they've been reinforced after reading your awesome book, listening to your masterclass, which as I heard is one of the most popular, if not the most popular masterclass and reading, uh, which is fantastic. So Chris, I'm, Very grateful to you. Thanks for being here. And thanks for sharing your story today. Thanks. And I like
0: to tell people how to follow up with uh, with me and my company.
1: Please do. Just subscribe to
0: the newsletter. I mean, the newsletter is free. That doesn't matter. The fact is actionable is concise. It's usable. I mean, it's not so much to digest that you can't use it. Subscribe to the newsletter. Go to our website, BlackSwanLTD.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Upper right-hand corner, click on the tab for the blog, sign up. It's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning, concise, perfect time for you to integrate some negotiation skills and get better that day. A lot of people get a long, long way with the book and the newsletter alone. It's also the gateway to our website, which has tons of free stuff on it. The black swan method will help you get a long way. So let us help you as much as we possibly can.
1: And for those who don't know, what kind of companies or people should come to you and how do they just contact you through the website? These are people who want to improve their negotiating skills and really some of their people skills. Yeah, if
0: you're curious and you're ambitious and you're willing to put in some work, We cater to what we refer to as the top 1%, and anybody can be in the 1%. doesn't matter what you do for a living. does not matter. If you're curious, you're ambitious, you want to get better, you think that you can make your life better, and that you like investing in you. Those are the people that we help the most.
1: There's no greater investment in the world than you can make in yourself. Right. Amen. Amen. You've been awesome. Again, Chris, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again at one of your talks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.